This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter and don't get sick. BunnySlippers.com, they've got those cool, woolly, highland cow slippers that everyone thinks are super cool. They're all shaggy and woolly and gosh darn it, don't they keep your feet warm. Also, found item clothing, cool shirts from your favorite cult movies. Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by them and whoever else our sponsor is and by the folks who listen to it, you. Want to help out the show? Get your name mentioned in the credits? Contact me in social media so I know because uh, I'm really bad at keeping track of this stuff. But uh, paypal.me slash pgttcm pgttcm.com Look for how to shop, be a patron, listen to all the episodes or all the episodes that are available currently, and find out more about the show. Hey everyone, it's me, D.B. Spitzer. Uh, I'm I'm super sick. I've been out of work for a couple of days because I've been so sick. Um, I've been kind of bedridden. I don't have the coronavirus. I know I live in Portland and I take mass transit everywhere. Um, I've been sick for a while and I've just been pushing it too hard and, you know, three podcasts, two jobs and everything else that I've got going on. But anyway, so, um, that doesn't mean I'm going to slow down on podcasts or anything else. I'm just going to try and take it easy and other stuff. So yeah, um, I have my my computer next to me in bed, so I decided to do this because I haven't been able to get into the studio for a bit, but I have this laptop here. So, sorry about the audio quality, and if you say, hey, what audio quality? Well, sorry for the audio quality in general. All right. Uh, remember, you can find the show at any podcatchers that you know and recommend it to your friends if, you know, something to listen to. And, you know, just, just tell them to skip the first three minutes. I always set up the first three minutes for uh, for this part. And then that's it. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales and our monthly show, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Articulate Warbling, Dave's Corner of the Podcast, uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, and all that kind of fun stuff. Thank you again so much. And uh, this this month is uh, Nikolai uh, Gogol. So enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol. Translated by D.J. Hogarth. Part 1, Chapter 8. Read by Michael Macedonia. It was not long before Chichikov's purchases had become the talk of the town and various were the opinions expressed as to whether or not it was expedient to procure peasants for transferment. Indeed, such was the interest taken by certain citizens in the matter that they advised the purchaser to provide himself and his convoy with an escort in order to ensure their safe arrival at the appointed destination. But though Chichikov thanked the donors of this advice for the same and declared that he should be very glad in case of need to avail himself of it, he declared also that there was no real need for an escort seeing that the peasants whom he had purchased were exceptionally peace-loving folk, and that being themselves consenting parties to the transferment, they would undoubtedly prove in every way tractable. 
One particularly good result of this advertisement of his scheme was that he came to rank as neither more nor less than a millionaire. Consequently, much as the inhabitants had liked our hero in the first instance, as seen in chapter one, they now liked him more than ever. As a matter of fact, they were citizens of an exceptionally quiet, good-natured, easy-going disposition, and some of them were even well-educated. For instance, the president of the local council could recite the whole of Zhukovsky's Lodmila by heart, and give such an impressive rendering of the passage, the pine forest was asleep and the valley at rest, as well as the exclamation, Phew! that one felt, as he did so, that the pine forest and the valley really were as he described them. The effect was also further heightened by the manner in which, at such moments, he assumed the most portentous frown. For his part, the postmaster went in more for philosophy, and diligently perused such works as Young's Night Thoughts and Eckhart Hausen's A Key to the Mysteries of Nature, of which latter work he would make copious extracts, though no one had the slightest notion what they referred to. For the rest, he was a witty, flurried little individual, and much addicted to a practice of what he called embellishing whatsoever he had to say, a feat which he performed with the aid of such by-the-way phrases as, my dear sir, my good so-and-so, you know, you understand, you may imagine, relatively speaking, for instance, and etc., of which phrases he would add sackfuls to his speech. He could also embellish his words by the simple expedient of half-closing, half-winking one eye, which trick communicated to some of his satirical utterances quite a mordant effect. Nor were his colleagues a whit inferior to him in enlightenment. For instance, one of them made a regular practice of reading Karamzin, another of conning the Moscow Gazette, and a third of never looking at a book at all. Likewise, although they were the sort of men to whom, in their more intimate movements, their wives would very naturally address such nicknames as Toby Jug, Malmet, Fatty, Potbelly, Smutty, Kiki, and Buzzbuzz, they were men also of good heart, and very ready to extend their hospitality and their friendship when once a guest had eaten of their bread and salt, or spent an evening in their company. Particularly, therefore, did Chichikov earn these good folks' approval with his taking methods and qualities, so much so that the expression of that approval bid fair to make it difficult for him to quit the town, seeing that wherever he went, the one phrase dinned into his ears was, Stay another week with us, Paul Ivanovich. In short, he ceased to be a free agent, but incomparably more striking was the impression, a matter of unbounded surprise, which he produced upon the ladies. Properly to explain this phenomenon, I should need to say a great deal about the ladies themselves, and to describe in the most vivid of colors their social intercourse and spiritual qualities. Yet this would be a difficult thing for me to do, since on the one hand, I should be hampered by my boundless respect for the womenfolk of all civil service officials, and on the other hand, well, simply by the innate arduousness of the task. The ladies of N were... But no, I cannot do it. My heart has already failed me. Come, come. The ladies of N were distinguished for, but it is of no use. Somehow my pen seems to refuse to move over the paper. It seems to be weighted as with a plummet of lead. Very well. That being so, I will merely say a word or two concerning the most prominent tints of the feminine palette of N. 
merely a word or two concerning the outward appearance of its ladies, and a word or two concerning their more superficial characteristics. The ladies of N were preeminently what is known as presentable. Indeed, in that respect, they might have served as models to the ladies of many another town. That is to say, in whatever pertained to tone, etiquette, the intricacies of decorum, and strict observance of the prevailing mode, they surpassed even the ladies of Moscow and St. Petersburg, seeing that they dressed with taste, drove about in carriages in the latest fashions, and never went out without the escort of a footman in gold lace livery. Again, they looked upon a visiting card, even upon a makeshift affair consisting of an ace of diamonds or two of clubs, as a sacred thing, so sacred that on one occasion two closely related ladies, who had also been closely attached friends, were known to fall out with one another over the mere fact of an omission to return a social call. Yes, in spite of the best efforts of husbands and kinsfolks to reconcile the antagonists, it became clear that though all else in the world might conceivably be possible, never could the hatchet be buried between ladies who had quarreled over a neglected visit. Likewise, strenuous scenes used to take place over questions of precedence, scenes of a kind which had the effect of inspiring husbands to great and knightly ideas on the subject of protecting the fair. True, never did a duel actually take place, since all the husbands were officials belonging to the civil service, but at least a given combatant would strive to heat contumely upon his rival, and, as we all know, this is a resource which may prove even more effectual than a duel. As regards morality, the ladies of N were nothing if not censorious, and would at once be fired with virtuous indignation when they heard of a case of vice or seduction. Nay, even to mere frailty, they would award the lash without mercy. On the other hand, should any instance of what they called third-personism occur among their own circle, it was always kept dark, not a hint of what was going on being allowed to transpire, and even the wronged husband holding himself ready should he meet with or hear of the third person to quote in a mild and rational manner the proverb, whom concerns it that a friend should consort with friend. In addition, I may say that, like most of the female world of St. Petersburg, the ladies of N were preeminently careful and refined in their choice of words and phrases. Never did a lady say, I blew my nose, or I perspired, or I spat. No, it had to be, I relieved my nose through the expedient of wiping it with my handkerchief, and so forth. Again, to say this glass or this plate smells badly was forbidden. No, not even a hint to such an effect was to be dropped. Rather, the proper phrase in such a case was, this glass or this plate is not behaving very well, or some such formula. In fact, to refine the Russian tongue the more thoroughly, something like half the words in it were cut out, which circumstance necessitated very frequent recourse to the tongue of France, since the same words, if spoken in French, were another matter altogether, and one could even use blunter ones than the ones originally objected to. So much for the ladies of N, provided that one confines one's observations to the surface, yet hardly need it be said that should one penetrate deeper than that, a great deal more would come to light. At the same time, it is never a very safe proceeding to peer deeply into the hearts of ladies. Wherefore, restricting ourselves to the foregoing superficialities, let us proceed further on our way. Hitherto, the ladies had paid Chichikov no particular attention, though giving him full credit for his gentlemanly and urbane demeanor, but from the moment that there arose rumors of his being a millionaire, other qualities of his began to be canvassed. 
Nevertheless, not all the ladies were governed by interested motives, since it is due to the term millionaire rather than to the character of the person who bears it that the mere sound of the word exercises upon rascals, upon decent folk, and upon folk who are neither the one nor the other, an undeniable influence. A millionaire suffers from the disadvantage of everywhere having to behold meanness, including the sort of meanness which, though not actually based upon calculations of self-interest, yet runs after the wealthy man with smiles and doffs his hat and begs for invitations to houses where the millionaire is known to be going to dine. That a similar inclination to meanness seized upon the ladies of N goes without saying with the result that many a drawing-room heard it whispered that, if Chichikov was not exactly a beauty, at least he was sufficiently good-looking to serve for a husband, though he could have borne to have been a little more rotund and stout. To that there would be added scornful references to lean husbands, and hints that they resembled toothbrushes rather than men, and many other feminine additions. Also, such crowds of feminine shoppers began to repair to the bazaar as almost to constitute a crush, and something like a procession of carriages ensued, so long grew the rank of vehicles. For their part, the tradesmen had the joy of seeing highly priced dress materials which they had bought at fairs and then been unable to dispose of, now suddenly become tradable and go off with a rush. For instance, on one occasion a lady appeared at mass in a bustle, which filled the church to an extent which led the verger on duty to bid the commoner folk withdraw to the porch, lest the lady's toilet should be soiled in the crush. Even Chichikov could not help privately remarking the attention which he aroused. On one occasion, when he returned to the inn, he found on his table a note addressed to himself. Whence it had come, and who had delivered it, he failed to discover, for the waiter declared that the person who had brought it had omitted to leave the name of the writer. Beginning abruptly with the words, I must write to you, the letter went on to say that between a certain pair of souls there existed a bond of sympathy, and this verity the epistle further confirmed with rows of full stops to the extent of nearly half a page. Next there followed a few reflections of a correctitude so remarkable that I have no choice but to quote them. What, I would ask, is this life of ours? inquired the writer. Tis not but a veil of woe. And what, I would ask, is the world? Tis not but a mob of unthinking humanity. Thereafter, incidentally remarking that she had just dropped a tear to the memory of her dear mother, who had departed this life twenty-five years ago, the presumably lady writer invited Chichikov to come forth into the wilds, and to leave forever the city where, penned in noisome haunts, folk could not even draw their breath. In conclusion, the writer gave way to unconcealed despair, and wound up with the following verses. Two turtle doves to thee one day, my dust will show congealed in death, and cooing warily they'll say, in grief and loneliness she drew her closing breath. True, the last line did not scan, but that was a trifle, since the quatrain at least conformed to the mode then prevalent. Neither signature nor date were appended to the document, but only a postscript expressing a conjecture that Chichikov's own heart would tell him who the writer was, and stating, in addition, that the said writer would be present at the governor's ball on the following night. This greatly interested Chichikov. Indeed, there was so much that was alluring and provocative of curiosity in the anonymous missive that he read it through a second time, and then a third, and finally said to himself, I should like to know who sent it. In short, he took the thing seriously, and spent over an hour in considering the same. 
At length, muttering a comment upon the epistle's effervescent style, he refolded the document and committed it to his dispatch box, in company with a playbill and an invitation to a wedding, the latter of which had for the last seven years reposed in the self-same receptacle and in the self-same position. Shortly afterwards, there arrived a card of invitation to the governor's ball, already referred to. In passing, it may be said that such festivities are not infrequent phenomena in county towns, for the reason that where governors exist, there must take place balls, if from the local gentry there is to be evoked that respectful affection, which is every governor's due. Thenceforth, all extraneous thoughts and considerations were laid aside in favor of preparing for the coming function. Indeed, this conjunction of exciting and provocative motives led to Chichikov devoting to his toilet an amount of time never witnessed since the creation of the world. Merely in the contemplation of his features in the mirror as he tried to communicate to them a succession of varying expressions was an hour spent. First of all, he strove to make his features assume an air of dignity and importance, and then an air of humble but faintly satirical respect, and then an air of respect guiltless of any alloy whatsoever. Next, he practiced performing a series of bows to his reflection, accompanied with certain murmurs intended to bear a resemblance to a French phrase, though Chichikov knew not a single word of the Gaelic tongue. Lastly came the performing of a series of what I might call agreeable surprises, in the shape of twitchings of the brow and lips and certain motions of the tongue. In short, he did all that a man is apt to do when he is not only alone, but also certain that he is handsome and that no one is regarding him through a chink. Finally, he tapped himself lightly on the chin and said, Ah, good old face. In the same way, when he started to dress himself for the ceremony, the level of his high spirits remained unimpaired throughout the process. That is to say, while adjusting his braces and tying his tie, he shuffled his feet in what was not exactly a dance, but might be called the entreact of a dance, which performance had the not very serious result of setting a wardrobe a rattle and causing a brush to slide from the table to the floor. Later, his entry into the ballroom produced an extraordinary effect. Everyone present came forward to meet him, some with cards in their hands, and one man even breaking off a conversation at the most interesting point, namely, the point that the inferior land court must be made responsible for everything. Yes, in spite of the responsibility of the inferior land court, the speaker cast all thoughts of it to the wind as he hurried to greet our hero. From every side resounded acclamations of welcome, and Chichikov felt himself engulfed in a sea of embraces. Thus, scarcely had he extricated himself from the arms of the president of the local council when he found himself just as firmly clasped in the arms of the chief of police, who, in turn, surrendered him to the inspector of the medical department, who, in turn, handed him over to the commissioner of taxes, who again committed him to the charge of the town architect. Even the governor, who hitherto had been standing among his womenfolk with a box of sweets in one hand and a lapdog in the other, now threw down both sweets and lapdog, the lapdog giving vent to a yelp as he did so, and added his greeting to those of the rest of the company. Indeed, not a face was there to be seen on which ecstatic delight, or at all events, the reflection of other people's ecstatic delight, was not painted. The same expression may be discerned on the faces of subordinate officials when, the newly arrived director having made his inspection, the said officials are beginning to get over their first sense of awe on perceiving that he has found much to commend, and that he can even go so far as to jest and utter a few words of smiling approval. 
Thereupon every chinovnik responds with a smile of double strength, and those who, it may be, have not heard a single word of the director's speech smile out of sympathy with the rest. And even the gendarme who is posted at the distant door, a man perhaps who has never before compassed a smile, but is more accustomed to dealing out blows to the populace, summons up a kind of grin, even though the grin resembles the grimace of a man who is about to sneeze after inadvertently taking an overlarge pinch of snuff. To all and sundry, Chichikov responded with a bow, and felt extraordinarily at ease as he did so. To right and left did he incline his head in the sidelong yet unconstrained manner that was his wont, and never failed to charm the beholder. As for the ladies, they clustered around him in a shiny bevy that was redolent of every species of perfume, of roses, of spring violets, and of mignonette, so much so that instinctively Chichikov raised his nose to snuff the air. Likewise, the ladies' dresses displayed an endless profusion of taste and variety, and though the majority of their wearers evinced a tendency to en bon point, those wearers knew how to call upon art for the concealment of the fact. Confronting them, Chichikov thought to himself, which of these beauties is the writer of the letter? Then again he snuffed the air. When the ladies had, to a certain extent, returned to their seats, he resumed his attempts to discern from glances and expressions which of them could possibly be the unknown authoress. Yet though those glances and expressions were too subtle, too insufficiently open, the difficulty in no way diminished his high spirits. Easily and gracefully did he exchange agreeable bandage with one lady, and then approach another one with the short, mincing steps usually affected by young old dandies who are fluttering around the fair. As he turned, not without dexterity to the right and left, he kept one leg slightly dragging behind the other, like a short tail or a comma. This trick the ladies particularly admired. In short, they not only discovered in him a host of recommendations and attractions, but also began to see in his face a sort of grand, Mars-like military expression, a thing which, as we know, never fails to please the feminine eye. Certain of the ladies even took to bickering over him, and, on perceiving that he spent most of his time standing near the door, some of their number hastened to occupy chairs nearer to his post of vantage. In fact, when a certain dame chanced to have the good fortune to anticipate a hated rival in the race, there very nearly ensued a most lamentable scene, which, to many of those who had been desirous of doing exactly the same thing, seemed a peculiarly horrible instance of brazen-faced audacity. So deeply did Chichikov become plunged in conversation with his fair pursuers, or rather, so deeply did those fair pursuers enmesh him in the toils of small talk, which they accomplished through the expedient of asking him endless subtle riddles, which brought the sweat to his brow in attempts to guess them, that he forgot the claims of courtesy which required him, first of all, to greet his hostess. In fact, he remembered those claims only on hearing the governor's wife herself addressing him. She had been standing before him for several minutes, and now greeted him with suave expressement in the words, So here you are, Paul Ivanovich. But what she said next, I am not in a position to report, for she spoke in the ultra-refined tone and vein wherein ladies and gentlemen customarily express themselves in higher-class novels, which have been written by experts more qualified than I am to describe salons and able to boast of some acquaintance with good society. In effect, what the governor's wife said was that she hoped, 
She greatly hoped that Monsieur Chichikov's heart still contained a corner, even the smallest possible corner, for those whom he had so cruelly forgotten. Upon that, Chichikov turned to her and was on the point of returning a reply at least no worse than that which would have been returned under similar circumstances by the hero of a fashionable novelette, when he stopped short, as though thunderstruck. Before him there was standing not only Madame, but also a young girl whom she was holding by the hand. The golden hair, the fine-drawn, delicate contours, the face with its bewitching oval, a face which might have served as a model for the countenance of the Madonna, since it was of a type rarely to be met with in Russia, where nearly everything from plains to human feet is rather on the gigantic scale. These features, I say, were those of the identical maiden whom Chichikov had encountered on the road when he had been fleeing from Nozdrev's. His emotion was such that he could not formulate a single intelligible syllable. He could merely murmur the devil only knows what, though certainly nothing of the kind which would have risen to the lips of the hero of a fashionable novel. "'I think that you have not met my daughter before,' said Madame. "'She is just fresh from school.' He replied that he had had the happiness of meeting Mademoiselle before, and under rather unexpected circumstances. But on his trying to say something further, his tongue completely failed him. The governor's wife added a word or two, and then carried off her daughter to speak to some of the other guests. Chichikov stood rooted to the spot, like a man who, after issuing into the street for a pleasant walk, has suddenly come to a halt on remembering that something has been left behind him. In a moment, as he struggles to recall what that something is, the mine of careless expectancy disappears from his face, and he no longer sees a single person or a single object in his vicinity. In the same way did Chichikov suddenly become oblivious to the scene around him. Yet all the while the melodious tongues of ladies were plying him with multitudinous hints and questions. Hints and questions inspired with a desire to captivate. Might we poor cumbers of the ground make so bold as to ask you what you are thinking of? Pray tell us where lie the happy regions in which your thoughts are wandering. Might we be informed of the name of her who has plunged you into this sweet abandonment of meditation? Such were the phrases thrown at him. But to everything he turned a dead ear and the phrases and questions might as well have been stones dropped into a pool. Indeed, his rudeness soon reached the pitch of his walking away altogether, in order that he might go and reconnoitre whether the governor's wife and daughter had retreated. But the ladies were not going to let him off so easy. Every one of them had made up her mind to use upon him her every weapon, and to exhibit whatsoever might chance to constitute her best point. Yet the ladies' wiles proved useless, for Chichikov paid not the smallest attention to them, even when the dancing had begun, but kept raising himself on tiptoe to peer over people's heads and ascertain in which direction the bewitching maiden with the golden hair had gone. Also, when seated, he continued to peep between his neighbors' backs and shoulders until at last he discovered her sitting beside her mother, who was wearing a sort of oriental turban and feather. Upon that, one would have thought that his purpose was to carry the position by storm, for whether moved by the influence of spring, or whether moved by a push from behind, 
he pressed forward with such desperate resolution that his elbow caused the commissioner of taxes to stagger on his feet and would have caused him to lose his balance altogether but for the supporting row of guests in the rear. Likewise, the postmaster was made to give ground, whereupon he turned and eyed Chichikov with mingled astonishment and subtle irony. But Chichikov never even noticed him. He saw in the distance only the golden-haired beauty. At that moment she was drawing on a long glove and, doubtless, pining to be flying over the dancing floor where, with clicking heels, four couples had now begun to thread the mazes of the mazurka. In particular was a military staff captain working body and soul and arms and legs to compass such a series of steps as were never before performed, even in a dream. However, Chichikov slipped past the mazurka dancers and, almost treading on their heels, made his way towards the spot where Madame and her daughter were seated. Yet he approached them with great diffidence and none of his late mincing and prancing. Nay, he even faltered as he walked. His every movement had about it an air of awkwardness. It is difficult to say whether or not the feeling which had awakened in our hero's breast was the feeling of love, for it is problematic whether or not men who are neither stout nor thin are capable of such sentiment. Nevertheless, something strange, something which he could not altogether explain, had come upon him. It seemed as though the ball, with its talk and its clatters, had suddenly become a thing remote, that the orchestra had withdrawn behind a hill, and the scene grown misty like the carelessly painted in background of a picture, and from that misty void there could be seen glimmering only the delicate outlines of the bewitching maiden. Somehow her exquisite shape reminded him of an ivory toy, in such fair, white, transparent relief did it stand out against the dull blur of the surrounding throng. Herein we see a phenomenon not infrequently observed, the phenomenon of the Chichikovs of this world becoming, temporarily, poets. At all events, for a moment or two, our Chichikov felt that he was a young man again, if not exactly a military officer. On perceiving an empty chair beside the mother and daughter, he hastened to occupy it, and though conversation at first hung fire, Things gradually improved, and he acquired more confidence. At this point, I must reluctantly deviate to say that men of weight and high office are always a trifle ponderous when conversing with ladies. Young lieutenants, or at all events, officers not above the rank of captain, are far more successful at the game. How they contrive to be so, God only knows. Let them but make the most inane of remarks, and at once the maiden by their side will be rocking with laughter. Whereas, should a state councillor enter into conversation with a damsel and remark that the Russian Empire is one of vast extent, or utter a compliment which he has elaborated not without a certain measure of intelligence, however strongly the said compliment may smack of a book, of a surety the thing will fall flat. Even a witticism from him will be left at far more by him himself than it will be by the lady who may happen to be listening to his remarks. These comments I have interposed for the purpose of explaining to the reader why, as our hero conversed, the maiden began to yawn. Aligned to this, however, he continued to relate to her sundry adventures which had befallen him in different parts of the world. Meanwhile, as need hardly be said, the rest of the ladies had taken umbrage at his behavior. One of them purposely stalked past him to intimate to him the fact, as well as to jostle the governor's daughter, and let the flying end of a scarf flick her face. While from a lady seated behind the pair, 
came both a whiff of violets and a very venomous and sarcastic remark. Nevertheless, either he did not hear the remark or he pretended not to hear it. This was unwise of him, since it never does to disregard ladies' opinions. Later, but too late, he was destined to learn this to his cost. In short, dissatisfaction began to display itself on every feminine face. No matter how high Chichikov might stand in society, and no matter how much he might be a millionaire, and include in his expression of countenance an indefinable element of grandness and martial ardor, there are certain things which no lady will pardon, whosoever be the person concerned. We know that at governor's balls, it is customary for the onlookers to compose verses at the expense of the dancers, and in this case, the verses were directed to Chichikov's address. Briefly, the prevailing dissatisfaction grew until a tacit edict of prescription had been issued against both him and the poor young maiden. But an even more unpleasant surprise was in store for our hero, for whilst the lady was still yawning as Chichikov recounted to her certain of his past adventures, and also touched lightly upon the subject of Greek philosophy, there appeared from an adjoining room the figure of Nozdrev. Whether he had come from the buffet, or whether he had issued from a little green retreat, where a game more strenuous than whist had been in progress, or whether he had left the latter resort unaided, or whether he had been expelled therefrom, is unknown. But at all events, when he entered the ballroom, he was in an elevated condition, and leading by the arm the public prosecutor, whom he seemed to have been dragging about for a long while past. Seeing that the poor man was glancing from side to side as though seeking a means of putting an end to this personally conducted tour. Certainly he must have found the situation almost unbearable, in view of the fact that, after deriving inspiration from two glasses of tea not wholly undiluted with rum, Nozdrev was engaged in lying unmercifully. On sighting him in the distance, Chichikov at once decided to sacrifice himself. That is to say, he decided to vacate his present enviable position and make off with all possible speed, since he could see that an encounter with the newcomer would do him no good. Unfortunately, at that moment, the governor buttonholed him with a request that he would come and act as arbiter between him, the governor, and two ladies. The subject of dispute being the question as to whether or not women's love is lasting. Simultaneously, Nozdrev descried our hero, and bore down upon him. "'Ah, my fine landowner of Kursen,' he cried with a smile which set his fresh spring rose pink cheeks a-quiver. "'Have you been doing much trade in departed souls lately?' With that he turned to the governor. "'I suppose your excellency knows that this man traffics in dead peasants,' he bawled. Look here, Chichikov, I tell you in the most friendly way possible that everyone here likes you. Yes, including even the governor. Nevertheless, had I my way, I would hang you. Yes, by God, I would. Chichikov's discomfiture was complete. And would you believe it, Your Excellency? went on Nozdrev. But this fellow actually said to me, Sell me your dead souls. Why, I laughed till I nearly became as dead as the souls. And behold, no sooner do I arrive here that I am told that he has bought three million rubles worth of peasants for transferment. For transferment, indeed, and he wanted to bargain with me for my dead ones. Look here, Chichikov, you are a swine. Yes, by God, you are an utter swine. Is that not so, Your Excellency? Is that not so, friend procurator? Public prosecutor. 
but both His Excellency the Public Prosecutor and Chichikov were too taken aback to reply. The half-tipsy Nozdrev, without noticing them, continued his harangue as before. Ah, my fine sir, he cried, this time I don't mean to let you go. No, not until I have learned what all this purchasing of dead peasants means. Look here, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Yes, I say that I, who am one of your best friends, here he turned to the governor again, your excellency, he continued, you would never believe what inseparables this man and I have been. Indeed, if you had stood there and said to me, Nozdrev, tell me on your honor which of the two you love best, your father or Chichikov, I should have replied, Chichikov, by God. With that, he tackled our hero again. Come, come, my friend, he urged. Let me imprint upon your cheeks a baser or two. You will excuse me if I kiss him, will you not, your excellency? No, do not resist me, Chichikov, but allow me to imprint at least one baser upon your lily-white cheek. And in his efforts to force upon Chichikov what he termed his basers, he came near to measuring his length upon the floor. Everyone now edged away and turned a deaf ear to his further babblings. But his words on the subject of the purchase of dead souls had nonetheless been uttered at the top of his voice, and been accompanied with such uproarious laughter that the curiosity, even of those who had happened to be sitting or standing in the remoter corners of the room, had been aroused. So strange and novel seemed the idea that the company stood with faces expressive of nothing but a dumb, dull wonder. Only some of the ladies, as Chichikov did not fail to remark, exchanged meaning ill-natured winks and a series of sarcastic smiles, which circumstance still further increased his confusion. That Nozdrev was a notorious liar everyone of course knew, and that he should have given vent to an idiotic outburst of this sort had surprised no one. But a dead soul? Well, what was one to make of Nozdrev's reference to such a commodity? Naturally, this unseemly contretemps had greatly upset our hero, for however foolish be a madman's words, they may yet prove sufficient to sow doubt in the minds of saner individuals. He felt much as does a man who, shod with well-polished boots, has just stepped into a dirty, stinking puddle. He tried to put away from him the occurrence and to expand and to enjoy himself once more. Nay, he even took a hand at whist, but all was of no avail. Matters kept going as awry as a badly bent hoop. Twice he blundered in his play, and the president of the council was at a loss to understand how his friend, Paul Ivanovich, lately so good and so circumspect a player, could perpetrate such a mauvais pas as to throw away a particular king of spades, which the president had been trusting, as, to quote his own expression, he would have trusted God. At supper, too, matters felt uncomfortable, even though the society at Chichikov's table was exceedingly agreeable and Nozdrev had been removed, owing to the fact that the ladies had found his conduct too scandalous to be borne, now that the delinquent had taken to seating himself on the floor and plucking at the skirts of passing lady dancers. As I say, therefore, Chichikov found the situation not a little awkward, and eventually put an end to it by leaving the supper room before the meal was over, and long before the hour when usually he returned to the inn. In his little room with its door of communication blocked with a wardrobe, his frame of mind remained as uncomfortable as the chair in which he was seated. His heart ached with a dull, unpleasant sensation, with a sort of oppressive emptiness. The devil take those who first invented balls, was his reflection. Who derives any real pleasure from them? In this province there exists want and scarcity everywhere, 
yet folk go in for balls. How absurd, too, were those overdressed women. One of them must have had a thousand rubles on her back, and all acquired at the expense of the overtaxed peasant, or worse still, at that of the conscience of her neighbor. Yes, we all know why bribes are accepted, and why men become crooked in soul. It is all done to provide wives, yes, may the pit swallow them up, with foul owls. And for what purpose? That some woman may not have to reproach her husband with the fact that, say, the postmaster's wife is wearing a better dress than she is? A dress which has cost a thousand rubles? Balls and gaiety, balls and gaiety is the constant cry, yet what folly balls are. They do not consort with the Russian spirit and genius, and the devil only knows why we have them. A grown middle-aged man, a man dressed in black and looking as stiff as a poker, suddenly takes the floor and begins shuffling his feet about, while another man, even though conversing with a companion on important business, will the while keep capering to right and left like a billy goat. Mimicry, sheer mimicry. The fact that the Frenchman is at forty precisely what he was at fifteen leads us to imagine that we too, forsooth, ought to be the same. No, a ball leaves one feeling that one has done a wrong thing, so much so that one does not care even to think of it. It also leaves one's head perfectly empty, even as does the exertion of talking to a man of the world. A man of that kind chatters away and touches lightly upon every conceivable subject and talks in smooth, fluent phrases which he has called from books without grazing their substance. Whereas go and have a chat with a tradesman who knows at least one thing thoroughly and through the medium of experience, and see whether his conversation will not be worth more than the prattle of a thousand chatterboxes. For what good does one get out of balls? Suppose that a competent writer would describe such a scene exactly as it stands. Why, even in a book, it would seem senseless, even as it certainly is in life. Are therefore such functions right or wrong? One would answer that the devil only knows, and then spit and close the book. Such were the unfavorable comments which Chichikov passed upon balls in general. With it all, however, there went a second source of dissatisfaction. That is to say, his principal grudge was not so much against the balls as against the fact that at this particular one he had been exposed. He had been made to disclose the circumstance that he had been playing a strange and ambiguous part. Of course, when he reviewed the contretemps in the light of pure reason, he could not but see that it mattered nothing, and that a few rude words were of no account now that the chief point had been attained. Yet man is an odd creature, and Chichkov actually felt pained by the cold shouldering administered to him by persons for whom he had not an atom of respect, and whose vanity and love of display he had only that moment been censuring. Still more, on viewing the matter clearly, he felt vexed to think that he himself had been so largely the cause of the catastrophe. Yet he was not angry with himself, of that you may be sure, seeing that all of us have a slight weakness for sparing our own faults, and always do our best to find some fellow creature upon whom to vent our displeasure. Whether that fellow creature be a servant, a subordinate official, or a wife, in the same way Chichikov sought a scapegoat upon whose shoulders he could lay the blame for all that had annoyed him. He found one in Nosedrev, and you may be sure that the scapegoat in question received a good drubbing from every side, even as an experienced captain or chief of police will give a navis starosta or postboy a rating not only in the terms, become classical, but also in such terms as the said captain or chief of police 
may invent for himself. In short, Nozdrev's whole lineage was passed in review, and many of its members in the ascending line fared badly in the process. Meanwhile, at the other end of the town there was in progress an event which was destined to augment still further the unpleasantness of our hero's position. That is to say, through the outlying streets and alleys of the town, there was clattering a vehicle to which it would be difficult precisely to assign a name, seeing that, though it was of a species peculiar to itself, it most nearly resembled a large rickety watermelon on wheels. Eventually this monstrosity drew up at the gates of a house where the archpriest of one of the churches resided, and from its doors there leapt a damsel clad in a jerkin and wearing a scarf over her head. For a while she thumped the gates so vigorously as to set all the dogs barking. Then the gates stiffly opened and admitted this unwieldy phenomenon of the road. Lastly, the Barinia herself alighted and stood revealed as Madame Karabochka, widow of a collegiate secretary. The reason of her sudden arrival was that she had felt so uneasy about the possible outcome of Chichikov's whim that during the three nights following his departure she had been unable to sleep a wink. Whereafter, in spite of the fact that her horses were not shod, she had set off for the town in order to learn at first hand how the dead souls were faring and whether, which might God forfend, she had not sold them at something like a third of their true value. The consequences of her venture the reader will learn from a conversation between two ladies. We will reserve it for the ensuing chapter. End of Part 1 Chapter 8 Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilyevich Gogol Translated by D.J. Hogar Part 1, Chapter 9 Read by Veron Real Next morning, before the usual hour for paying calls, there tripped from the portals of an orange-colored wooden house with an attic story and a row of blue pillars, a lady in an elegant plaid cloak. With her came a footman in a many-caped greatcoat and a polished top hat with a gold band. Hastily, but gracefully, the lady ascended the steps let down from a koliaska, which was standing before the entrance, and as soon as she had done so, the footman shut her in, put up the steps again, and, catching hold of the strap behind the vehicle, shouted to the coachman, Right away! The reason of all this was that the lady was the possessor of a piece of intelligence that she was burning to communicate to a fellow creature. Every moment she kept looking out of the carriage window and perceiving, with almost speechless vexation, that, as yet, she was but halfway on her journey. The fronts of the houses appeared to her longer than usual, and in particular did the front of the white stone hospital, with its rows of narrow windows, seem interminable to a degree which at length forced her to ejaculate. Oh, the cursed building! Positively, there's no end to it. Also, she twice adjured the coachman with the words. Go quicker, Andrusha. You are a horribly long time over the journey this morning. But at length, the goal was reached, and the Kolyaska stopped before a one-storied wooden mansion, dark grey in colour, and, having white carvings over the windows, a tall wooden fence and narrow garden in front of the letter, 
and a few meagre trees looming white with an incongruous coating of old dust. In the windows of the building were also a few flower pots, and a parrot that kept alternately dancing on the floor of its cage, and hanging on to the ring of the same with its beak. Also, in the sunshine before the door, two pet dogs were sleeping. Here there lived the lady's bosom friend. As soon as the bosom friend in question learned of the newcomer's arrival, she ran down into the hall, and the two ladies kissed and embraced one another. Then they adjourned to the drawing room. How glad am I to see you, said the bosom friend. When I heard someone arriving, I wondered who could possibly be calling so early. Parasha declared that it must be the vice-governor's wife, so, as I did not want to be bored with her, I gave orders that I was to be reported, not at home. For her part, the guest would have liked to have proceeded to business by communicating her tidings, but a sudden exclamation from the hostess imparted, temporarily, a new direction to the conversation. What a pretty chintz, she cried, gazing at the other's gown. Yes, it is pretty, agreed the visitor. On the other hand, Praskovia Fedorovna thinks that. In other words, the ladies proceeded to indulge in a conversation on the subject of dress, and only after this had lasted for a considerable while did the visitor let fall a remark which led her entertainer to inquire. And how is the universal charmer? My God, replied the other, there has been such a business. In fact, do you know why I'm here at all? And the visitor's breathing became more hurried, and further words seemed to be hovering between her lips, like hawks preparing to stoop upon their prey. Only a person of the unhumanity of a true friend would have at the heart to interrupt her. But the hostess was just such a friend, and at once interposed with, I wonder how anyone can see anything in the man to praise or to admire. For my own part, I think, and I would say the same thing straight to his face, that he is a perfect rascal. Yes, but to listen to what I've got to tell you. Oh, I know that some people think him handsome, continued the hostess, unmoved. But I say that he is nothing of the kind, that in particular, his nose is perfectly odious. Yes, but let me finish what I was saying. The guest's tone was almost piteous in its appeal. What is it then? You cannot imagine my state of mind. You see, this morning I received a visit from Father Cyril's wife, the Archpriest's wife. You know her, don't you? Well, whom do you suppose that fine gentleman visitor of ours has turned out to be? The man who has built the Archpriest a poultry run? Oh dear no, had that been all, it would have been nothing, no. Listen to what Father Cyril's wife had to tell me. She said that, Last night, lady landowner named Madame Karabochka arrived at the Archpriest's house, arrived all pale and trembling, and told her, oh, such things. They sound like a piece out of a book, that is to say, at the dead of night, just when everyone had retired to rest, there came the most dreadful knocking imaginable, and someone screamed out, Open the gates, or we'll break them down. Just think, after this, how anyone can say that the man is charming, I cannot imagine. Well, what of Madame Korobotchka? Is she a young woman, or good-looking? Oh dear, no, quite an old woman. 
Splendid indeed. So he's actually engaged to a person like that? One may heartily commend the taste of our ladies for having fallen in love with him. Nevertheless, it is not as you suppose. Think now. Armed with weapons from head to foot, he called upon this old woman and said, Sell me any souls of yours which have lately died. Of course, Madame Korobotchka answered, reasonably enough, I cannot sell you those souls, seeing that they have departed this world. But I replied, No, no, they are not dead. Tis I who tell you that, I who ought to know the truth of the matter. I swear that they are still alive. In short, he made such a scene that the whole village came running to the house, and children screamed, and men shouted, and no one could tell what it was all about. The affair seemed to me so horrible, so utterly horrible, that I trembled beyond belief as I listened to the story. My dearest madam, said my maid, Mashka, pray look at yourself in the mirror, and see how white you are. But I have no time for that, I replied, as I must be off to tell my friend, Anna Grigorievna, the news. Nor did I lose a moment in ordering the Kogioska. Yet when my coachman, Andrusha, asked me for directions, I could not get a word out. I just stood staring at him like a fool, until I thought he must think me mad. Oh, Anna Grigorievna, if you but knew how upset I am. What a strange affair, commented the hostess. What on earth can a man have man by, dead souls? I confess that the words pass my understanding. Curiously enough, this is the second time I have heard speak of those souls. True, my husband avers that Nostrev is lying. Yet in his lies there seems to have been a grain of truth. Well, just think of my state when I heard all this. And now, apparently said Korobotchka to Archpriest's wife, I am altogether at a loss what to do. For, throwing me fifteen rubles, the man forced me to sign a worthless paper. Yes, me, an inexperienced, defenseless widow who knows nothing of business. That such things should happen. Try and imagine my feelings. In my opinion, there is in this more than a dead soul which meet the eye. I think so too, agreed the other. As a matter of fact, her friend's remark had struck her with complete surprise, as well as filled her with curiosity to know what the word more might possibly signify. In fact, she felt driven to inquire, What do you suppose to be hidden beneath it all? No, tell me, what do you suppose? What I suppose? I am at a loss to conjecture. Yes, but tell me what's in your mind. Upon this, the visitor had to confess herself nonplussed. For, though capable of growing hysterical, she wasn't capable of propounding any rational theory. Consequently, she felt the more that she needed tender comfort and advice. And this is what I think about the dead souls, said Hostess. Instantly, the guests pricked up ears, or rather, they pricked themselves up, and straightened herself and became, somehow, more modish, and despite her not inconsiderable wit, posed herself to look like a piece of thistledown floating on the breeze. The dead souls began the Hostess. A what, a what? inquired the guest in great excitement. Ah, uh, ah, uh, tell me, tell me for heaven's sake. They are an invention to conceal something else. The man's real object is to abduct the governor's daughter. So startling and unexpected was this conclusion that the guest sat reduced to a state of pale, 
petrified genuine amazement. My God, she cried, clapping her hands. I should never have guessed it. Well, to tell you the truth, I guessed it as soon as ever you opened your mouth. So much then, for educating girls like the governor's daughter at school. Just see what comes of it. Yes, indeed. And you tell me that she says things which I hesitate even to repeat. Truly it rings one's heart to see to what lengths immorality has come. Some of the men have quite lost their heads about her, but for my part I think her not worth noticing. Of course, and the manners are unbearable. But what puzzles me most is how a travelled man like Chichikov could come to let himself in for such an affair. Surely he must have accomplices? Yes, and I should say that one of those accomplices is Nostrov. Surely not. Certainly, I should say so. Why, I have known him even try to sell his own father, at all events to stake him at cards. Indeed, and trust me, I should never have thought him capable of such things. I always guess him to be so. The two ladies were still discussing the matter with acumen and success when they walked into the room the public prosecutor. Bushy eyebrows, motionless features, pinky eyes and all. At once the ladies hastened to inform him of the events related, adducing therewith full details, both as to the purchase of dead souls and as to his scheme to abduct the governor's daughter, after which they departed in different directions for the purpose of raising the rest of the town. For the execution of this undertaking, not more than half an hour was required. So thoroughly did they succeed in throwing dust in public's eyes, that for a while every one, more especially the army of public officials, was placed in a position of a schoolboy, who, while still asleep, has had a bag of pepper thrown in his face by a party of more early rising comrades. The questions now to be debated resolve themselves into two, namely, the question of the dead souls and the question of the governor's daughter. To this end, two parties were formed. The men's party and the feminine section. The men's party, the more absolute sentence of the two, devoted its attention to the dead souls. The women's party occupied itself exclusively with the alleged abduction of the governor's daughter. And here it may be said, to a lady's credit, that the women's party displayed far more method and caution than did its rival faction, probably because the function and life of its members had always been that of managing and administering a household. With the ladies, therefore, matters soon assumed vivid and definite shape. They became clearly and irrefutably materialized. They stood stripped of all doubt and other impedimenta. Said some of the ladies in question, Chichikov had long been in love with the maiden, and the pair had kept tryst by the light of the moon, while the governor would have given his consent, seeing that Chichikov was as rich as a Jew. But for the obstacle that Chichikov had deserted a wife already, how the worthy dames came to know that he was married remains a mystery, and the sad deserted wife, pining with love for her faithless husband, had sent the governor a letter of the most searching kind, so that Chichikov, on perceiving that the father and mother would never give the consent, had decided to abduct the girl. In other circles, the matter was stated in a different way. That is to say, the section about that Chichikov did not possess a wife, but that, as a man of subtlety and experience, he had bethought him of obtaining the daughter's hand 
to the expedient of first tackling the mother, and carrying on with her in our liaison, and that thereafter he had made an application for the desired hand, but that the mother, fearing to commit a sin against religion, and feeling in her heart certain gnawings of conscience, had returned a blank refusal to Chichikov's request, whereupon Chichikov had decided to carry out the abduction alleged. To the foregoing, of course, there became appended various additional proofs and items of evidence, in proportion as the sensation spread to more remote corners of the town. At length, with these perfectings, the affair reached the ears of the governor's wife herself. Naturally, as the mother of a family, and as the first lady in the town, and as a matron who had never before been suspected of things of the kind, she was highly offended when she heard the stories, and very justly so, with the result that her poor young daughter, though innocent, had to endure about as unpleasant a tête-à-tête as ever befell a maiden of sixteen, while, for his part, the Swiss footman received orders never at any time to admit Chichkov to the house. Having done their business with the governor's wife, the ladies' party descended upon the male section, with a view to influencing it to their own side by asserting that the dead souls were an invention used solely for the purpose of diverting suspicion and successfully effecting the abduction. And, indeed, more than one man was converted and joined the feminine camp, in spite of the fact that thereby such seceders incurred strong names from their late comrades. Names such as old women, petticoats, and others of a nature peculiarly offensive to the male sex. Also, however much they might arm themselves and take the field, the men could not compass such orderliness within their ranks as could the women. With the former, everything was of the antiquated and rough-hewn and ill-fitting and unsuitable and badly adapted and inferior kind. Their heads were full of nothing but discord and triviality and confusion and slovenliness of thought. In brief, they displayed everywhere the male bent, their rude, ponderous nature, which is incapable either of managing a household, of jumping to a conclusion, as well as remains always distrustful and lazy and full of constant doubt and everlasting timidity. For instance, the men's party declared that the whole story was rubbish, that the alleged abduction of the governor's daughter was the work rather of a military than of a civilian culprit, that the ladies were lying when they accused Chichikov of the deed, that a woman was like a money bag, whatsoever you put into her, she thenceforth retained, that the subject which really demanded attention was the dead souls, of which the devil only knew the meaning, but in which there certainly lurked something that was contrary to good order and discipline. One reason why the men's party was so certain that the dead souls connoted something contrary to good order and discipline was that there had just been appointed to a province a new governor-general, an event which, of course, had thrown the whole army of provincial chinovniks into a state of great excitement, seeing that they knew that before long there would ensue transferments and sentences of censure, as well as a series of official dinners with which a governor-general is accustomed to entertain his subordinates. Alas, 
thought the army of chinovniks it is probable that should he learn of the gross reports at present afloat in our town he will make such a fuss that we shall never hear the last of them in particular did the director of the medical department turn pale at the top that possibly the new governor-general could surmise the term dead folk to connote patients in the local hospitals who for want of proper preventative measures had died of sporadic fever indeed might it not be that chichikov was neither more nor less than an emissary of the said governor-general sent to conduct a secret inquiry accordingly the director of the medical department communicated this last supposition to the president of the council who though at first inclined to ejaculate rubbish suddenly turned pale on propounding to himself as hearing what if the souls purchased by chichikov could really be dead once a terrible thought considering that he the president had permitted their transferment to be registered and had himself acted as plushkin's representative but if these things should reach the governor-general's ears he mentioned the matter to one friend and another and they in their turn ran white to lips but panic spreads faster and is even more destructive than their dreaded black death also to add to the chinovnik's troubles it so befell that just at this juncture there came into the local governor's hands two documents of great importance the first of them contained advices that according to received evidence and reports there was operating in the province a forger of ruble notes who had been passing under various aliases and must therefore be sought for with the utmost diligence while the second document was a letter from the governor of a neighbouring province with regard to a malefactor who had there evaded apprehension a letter conveying also a warning that if in the province of the town of n there should appear any suspicious individual who could produce neither references nor passports he was to be arrested forthwith these two documents left everyone thunderstruck for they not on the head all previous conceptions and theories not for a moment could it be supposed that the former document referred to chichikov yet as each man pondered the position from his own point of view he remembered that no one really knew who chichikov was as also that his vague references to himself had yes included statements that his career in the service had suffered much the cause of truth and that he possessed a number of enemies who were seeking his life this gave the chinovniks further food for thought perhaps his life really did stand in danger perhaps he was being sought for by someone perhaps he really had done something of the kind above referred to as a matter of fact who was he not that it could actually be supposed that he was a forger of notes still less a brigand seeing that his exterior was respectable in the highest degree yet who was he at length the chinovniks decided to make inquiries among those of whom he had purchased souls in order that at least it might be learned what the purchasers had consisted of and what exactly underlay them and whether in passing he had explained to any one his real intentions or revealed to any one his identity in the first instance therefore resort was had to karabotchka 
yet little was gleaned from that source merely a statement that he had bought of her some souls for fifteen roubles apiece and also a quantity of feathers while promising also to buy some other commodities in the future seeing that in particular he had entered into a contract with the treasury for law a fact constituting fairly presumptive proof that the man was a rule seeing that just such another fellow had bought a quantity of feathers and had cheated folk all round and in particular had done the archpriest out of over a hundred roubles thus the net result of madame's cross-examination was to convince the chinovniks that she was a garrulous silly old woman with regard to madame he replied that he would answer for chichikov as he would for himself and that he would gladly sacrifice his property in total if thereby he could attain even a tithe of the qualities which paul ivanovitch possessed finally he delivered on chichikov with acutely knitted brows a eulogy couched in the most charming of terms and coupled with sundry sentiments on the subject of friendship and affection in general true these remarks suffice to indicate the tender impulses of the speaker's heart but also they did nothing to enlighten his examiners concerning the business that was actually at hand as a sober cabbage that landowner replied that he considered chichikov an excellent fellow as well as that the souls whom he had sold to his visitor had been in the truest sense of the word alive but that he could not answer for anything which might occur in the future seeing that any difficulties which might arise in the course of the actual transferment of souls would not be his fault in view of the fact that god was lord of all and that fevers and other mortal complaints were so numerous in the world and that instances of whole villages perishing through the same could be found on record finally our friends the chernovniks found themselves compelled to resort to an expedient which though not particularly savoury is not infrequently employed namely the expedient of getting lackeys quietly to approach the servants of the person concerning whom information is desired and to ascertain from them their servants certain details with regard to their master's life and antecedents yet even from this source very little was obtained and since petrushka provided his interrogators merely with the taste of the smell of his living-room and selifan confined his replies to statement that the baron had been in the employment of the state and also had served in the customs in short the sum total of the results gathered by the chernovniks was that they still stood in ignorance of chichikov's identity but that he must be someone wherefore it was decided to hold a final debate on the subject on what ought to be done and who chichikov could possibly be and whether or not he was a man who ought to be apprehended and detained as not respectable or whether he was a man who might himself be able to apprehend and detain them as persons lacking in respectability the debate in question it was proposed should be held at the residence of the chief of police who is known to our readers as the father and general benefactor of the town end of part one chapter nine
Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol Translated by D.J. Hogarth Part 1, Chapter 10 On assembling at the residence indicated, the chinovniks had occasion to remark that, owing to all these cares and excitements, every one of their number had grown thinner. Yes, the appointment of a new Governor-General, coupled with the rumours described, and the reception of the two serious documents above mentioned, had left manifest traces upon the features of everyone present. More than one frock coat had come to look too large for its wearer, and more than one frame had fallen away, including the frames of the President of the Council, the Director of the Medical Department, and the Public Prosecutor. Even a certain Semen Ivanovich, who for some reason or another was never alluded to by his family name, but who wore on his index finger a ring with which he was accustomed to dazzle his lady friends, had diminished in bulk. Yet, as always happens at such junctures, there were also present a score of brazen individuals who have succeeded in not losing their presence of mind, even though they constituted a mere sprinkling. Of them, the postmaster formed one, since he was a man of equable temperament who could always say, we know you, Governor-Generals. We have seen three or four of you come and go, whereas we have been sitting on the same stool these thirty years. Nevertheless, a prominent feature of the gathering was the total absence of what is vulgarly known as common sense. In general, we Russians do not make a good show at representative assemblies, for the reason that, unless there be in authority a leading spirit to control the rest, the affair always develops into confusion. Why this should be so, one can hardly say. But at all events, a success is scored only by such gatherings as have for their object dining and festivity, to wit, gatherings at clubs or in German-run restaurants. However, on the present occasion, the meeting was not one of this kind. It was a meeting convoked of necessity, and likely in view of the threatened calamity to affect every chinovnik in the place. Also, in addition to the great divergency of views expressed thereat, there was visible in all of the speakers an invincible tendency to indecision, which led them at one moment to make assertions, and then at the next to contradict the same. But on at least one point, all seemed to agree, namely that Chichikov's appearance and conversation were too respectable for him to be a forger or a disguised brigand. That is to say, all seemed to agree on the point until a sudden shout arose from the direction of the postmaster, who for some time past had been sitting plunged in thought. "'I can tell you,' he cried, "'who Chichikov is.' "'Who, then?' replied the crowd in great excitement. "'He is none other than Captain Kopeikin.' "'And who may Captain Kopeikin be?' Taking a pinch of snuff, which he did with the lid of his snuff-box half open, lest some extraneous person should contrive to insert a not over-clean finger into the stuff, the postmaster related the following story. To reproduce this story with a raciness worthy of the Russian original is practically impossible. The translator has not attempted the task. After fighting in the campaign of 1812, there was sent home, wounded, a certain Captain Kopeikin, a headstrong, lively blade who, whether on duty or under arrest, made things lively for everybody. Now, since at Krasny or Leipzig, it matters not which, he had lost an arm and a leg, and in those days no provision was made for wounded soldiers, he could not work with his left arm alone. He set out to see his father. 
Unfortunately, his father could only just support himself and was forced to tell his son so. Wherefore, the captain decided to go and apply for help in St. Petersburg, seeing that he had risked his life for his country and had lost much blood in its service. You can imagine him arriving in the capital on a baggage wagon, in the capital which is like no other city in the world. Before him there lay spread out the whole field of life, like a sort of Arabian Nights, a picture made up of the Nevsky Prospect, Gorohovaya Street, countless tapering spires and a number of bridges apparently supported on nothing. In fact, a regular second Nineveh. Well, he made shift to hire a lodging, but found everything so wonderfully furnished with blinds and Persian carpets and so forth, that he saw it would mean throwing away a lot of money. True, as one walks the streets of St. Petersburg, one seems to smell money by the thousand roubles, but our friend Kopakin's bank was limited to a few score coppers and a little silver, not enough to buy a village with. At length, at the price of a rouble a day, he obtained a lodging in the sort of tavern where the daily ration is a bowl of cabbage soup and a crust of bread. And, as he felt that he could not manage to live very long on fare of that kind, he asked folk what he had better do. What you had better do, they said. Well, the government is not here, it is in Paris, and the troops have not yet returned from the war. But there is a temporary commission sitting, and you had better go and see what it can do for you. All right, he said, I will go and tell the commission that I've shed my blood and sacrificed my life for my country. And he got up early one morning and shaved himself with his left hand, since the expense of a barber was not worthwhile, and set out, wooden leg and all, to see the president of the commission. But first he asked where the president lived, and was told that his house was in Nabir Shnaya Street, and you may be sure that it was no peasant's hut, for its glazed windows and great mirrors and statues and lackeys and brass door handles. Rather it was the sort of place where you would enter only after you had bought a sheep sort cake of soap and indulged in a two-hour wash. Also at the entrance there were posted a grand Swiss footman with a baton and embroidered collar, a fellow looking like a fat overfed pug dog. However, friend Kopakin managed to get himself and his wooden leg into the reception room, and there squeezed himself away into a corner, for fear lest he should knock down the gilded china with his elbow. And he stood waiting in great satisfaction at having arrived before the president had so much as left his bed and been served with his silver wash basin. Nevertheless, it was only when Kopakin had been waiting for hours that a breakfast waiter entered to say, The President will soon be here. By now the room was as full of people as a plate of beans, and when the President left the breakfast room, he brought with him, oh, such dignity and refinement, and such an air of the metropolis. For he walked up to one person, and then up to another, saying, What do you want? And what do you want? What can I do for you? What is your business? And at length he stopped before Kopakin, and Kopakin said to him, I have shed my blood, and lost both an arm and a leg for my country, and am unable to work. Might I therefore dare to ask you for a little help, if the regulations should permit it, or for a gratuity, or for a pension, or something of that kind? Then the President looked at him, and saw that one of his legs was indeed a wooden one, and that an empty right sleeve was pinned to his uniform. Very well, he said. Come to me again in a few days' time. Upon this, friend Kopakin felt delighted. 
Now I have done my job, he thought to himself, and you may imagine how gaily he trotted along the pavement, and how he dropped into a tavern for a glass of vodka, and how he ordered a cutlet and some caper sauce, and some other things for luncheon, and how he called for a bottle of wine, and how he went to the theatre in the evening. In short, he did himself thoroughly well. Next he saw in the street a young English lady, as graceful as a swan, and set off after her on his wooden leg. But no, he thought to himself, to the devil with that sort of thing just now, I will wait until I have drawn my pension. For the present I have spent enough. And I may well tell you that by now he had got through fully half his money. Two or three days later he went to see the President of the Commission again. I should be glad to know, he said, whether by now you can do anything for me in return for my having shed my blood and suffered sickness and wounds on military service. First of all, said the President, I must tell you that nothing can be decided in your case without the authority of the supreme government. Without that sanction we cannot move in this matter. Surely you see how things stand until the army shall have returned from the war. All that I can advise you to do is wait for the minister to return, and in the meanwhile to have patience. Rest assured that you will not be overlooked, and if for the moment you have nothing to live upon, this is the best that I can do for you. With that, he handed Kopeikin a trifle until his case should be decided. However, that was not what Kopeikin wanted. He had supposed he would be given a gratuity of a thousand rubles straight away, whereas instead of drink and be merry, it was wait for the time is not yet. Thus, though his head had been full of soup plates and cutlets and English girls, he now descended the steps with his ears and his tail down looking in fact like a poodle over which the cook had poured a bucket full of water. You see, St. Petersburg life had changed him not a little since first he had got a taste of it, and now that the devil only knew how he was going to live, it came all the harder to him that he would have no more sweets to look forward to. Remember that a man in the prime of years has an appetite like a wolf, and as he passed a restaurant he could see a round-faced, holland-shirted, snow-white aproned fellow of a French chef preparing a dish delicious enough to make it turn and eat itself. While again, as he passed a fruit shop, he could see delicacies looking out of the windows for fools to come and buy them at a hundred rubles apiece. Imagine therefore his position. On the one hand, so to speak, were salmon and watermelons. On the other hand was the bitter fare which passed at a tavern for luncheon. Well, he thought to himself, let them do what they like with me at the commission. But I intend to go and raise the whole place, and to tell every blessed functionary there that I have a mind to do as I choose. And in truth, this bold impertinence of a man did have the hardihood to return to the commission. What do you want? said the President. Why are you here for the third time? You have had your orders given you? I dare say I have, he retorted, but I am not going to be put off with them. I want some cutlets to eat, and a bottle of French wine, and a chance to go and amuse myself at the theatre. Pardon me, said the President. What you really need, if I may venture to mention it, is a little patience. You have been given something for food until the military committee shall have met, and then, doubtless, you will receive your proper reward, seeing that it would not be seemly that a man who has served his country should be left destitute. On the other hand, if in the meanwhile you desire to indulge in cutlets and theatre-going, please understand that we cannot help you. But you must make your own resources and try as best you can to help yourself. 
You can imagine that this went in at one of Kopakin's ears and out at the other, that it was like shooting peas at a stone wall. Accordingly, he raised a turmoil which sent the staff flying. One by one, he gave the mob of secretaries and clerks a real good hammering. You, and you, and you, he said, do not even know your duties. You are lawbreakers. Yes, he trod every man of them underfoot. At length, the general himself arrived from another office and sounded the alarm. What was to be done with a fellow like Kopakin? The president saw that strong measures were imperative. Very well, he said, since you decline to rest satisfied with what has been given you, and quietly to await the decision of your case in St. Petersburg, I must find you a lodging. Here, constable, remove this man to jail. Then a constable, who had been called to the door, a constable three L's in height, and armed with a carbine, a man well fitted to guard a bank, placed our friend in a police wagon. Well, reflected Kopakin, at least I shan't have to pay my fare for this ride. That's one comfort. Again, after he had ridden a little way, he said to himself, They told me at the commission to go and make my own means of enjoying myself. Very good, I'll do so. However, what became of Kopakin and whither he went is known to no one. He sank, to use the poet's expression, into the waters of Leith, and in doing so now lies buried in oblivion. But allow me, gentlemen, to piece together the further threads of the story. Not two months later there appeared in the forests of Ryazan a band of robbers, and of that band the chieftain was none other than... Allow me, put in the head of the police department. You have said that Kopakin has lost an arm and a leg, whereas Chichikov... To say anything more was unnecessary. The postmaster clapped his hand to his forehead and publicly called himself a fool, though later he tried to excuse his mistake by saying that in England the science of mechanics had reached such a pitch that wooden legs were manufactured which would enable the wearer, on touching a spring, to vanish instantaneously from sight. Various other theories were then propounded, along the theory that Chichikov was Napoleon, escaped from St. Helena, and travelling about the world in disguise. And if it should be supposed that no such notion could possibly have been broached, yet the reader remember that these events took place not many years after the French had been driven out of Russia, and that various prophets had since declared that Napoleon was Antichrist, and would one day escape from his island prison to exercise universal sway on earth. Nay, some good folks had even declared the letters of Napoleon's name to constitute the apocalyptic cipher. And, as a last resort, the Chinovniks decided to question Nozdrev, since not only had the latter been the first to mention the dead souls, but also he was supposed to stand on terms of intimacy with Chichikov. Accordingly, the chief of police dispatched a note by the hand of a commissionaire. At the time, Nozdrev was engaged on some very important business, so much so that he had not left his room for four days and was receiving his meals through his window, and no visitors at all. The business referred to consisted of the marking of several dozen selected cards in such a way as to permit of his relying upon them as upon his bosom friend. Naturally, he did not like having his retirement invaded and at first consigned the commissionaire to the devil. But as soon as he learnt from the note that, since a novice at cards was to be the guest of the chief of police that evening, a call at the latter's house might prove not wholly unprofitable, he relented, unlocked the door of his room, threw on the first garments that came to hand, and set forth. 
To every question put to him by the Chinovniks, he answered firmly and with assurance. Chichikov, he averred, had indeed purchased dead souls, and to the tune of several thousand roubles. In fact, he, Nozdrev, had himself sold him some, and still saw no reason why he should not have done so. Next, to the question of whether or not he considered Chichikov to be a spy, he replied in the affirmative, and added that, as long ago as his and Chichikov's joint school days, the said Chichikov had been known as the informer, and repeatedly been thrashed by his companions on that account. Again, to the question of whether or not Chichikov was a forger of currency notes, the deponent, as before, responded in the affirmative, and appended thereto an anecdote illustrative of Chichikov's extraordinary dexterity of hand, namely, an anecdote to the effect that, once upon a time, on learning that two million roubles' worth of counterfeit notes were lying in Chichikov's house, the authority had placed seals upon the building, and had surrounded it on every side with an armed guard, whereupon Chichikov had, during the night, changed each of these seals for a new one, and also so arranged matters that when the house was searched, the forged notes were found to be genuine ones. Again, to the question of whether or not Chichikov had schemed to abduct the governor's daughter, and also whether it was true that he, Nozdrev, had undertaken to aid and abet him in the act, the witness replied that he had not undertaken to do so. The affair would never have come off. At this point, the witness pulled himself up on realising that he had told a lie which might get him into trouble. But his tongue was not to be denied. The details trembling on its tip were too alluring, and he even went on to cite the name of the village church where the pair had arranged to be married, that of the priest who had performed the ceremony, the amount of the fees paid for the same, 75 rubles, and statements, one, that the priest had refused to solemnize the wedding until Chichikov had frightened him by threatening to expose the fact that he, the priest, had married Mikhail, the local corn dealer, to his paramour, and two, that Chichikov had ordered both a kalayaska for the couple's conveyance and relays of horses from the post houses on the road. Nay, the narrative as detailed by Nozdrev even reached the point of his mentioning certain of the Bastilians by name. Next, the Chinovniks sounded him on the question of Chichikov's possible identity with Napoleon, but before long they had reason to regret the step. For Nozdrev responded with a rambling rigmarole such as bore no resemblance to anything possibly conceivable. Finally, the majority of the audience left the room, and only the chief of police remained to listen, in the hope of gathering something more. But at last, even he found himself forced to disclaim the speaker with a gesture which said, the devil only knows what the fellow is talking about. And so voiced the general opinion that it was no use trying to gather figs of thistles. Meanwhile, Chichikov knew nothing of these events, for having contracted a slight chill coupled with a sore throat, he had decided to keep his room for three days, during which time he gargled his throat with milk and fig juice, consumed the fruit from which the juice had been extracted, and wore around his neck a poultice of chamomile and camphor. Also, to while away the hours, he made new and more detailed list of the souls which he had bought, perused a work by the Duchesse de la Valliere, rummaged in his portmanteau, looked through various articles and papers which he discovered in his dispatch box, and found every one of these occupations tedious. Nor could he understand why none of his official friends had come to see him and inquire after his health, seeing that, not long since, there had been standing in front of the inn at Drozky's both the postmaster, the public prosecutor, and the president of the council. 
He wondered and wondered, and then, with a shrug of his shoulders, fell to pacing the room. At length he felt better, and his spirits rose at the prospect of once more going out into the fresh air. Wherefore, having shaved a plentiful growth of hair from his face, he dressed with such alacrity as almost to cause a split in his trousers, sprinkled himself with eau de cologne, and wrapping himself in warm clothes and turning up his collar of his coat, sallied forth into the street. His first destination was intended to be the governor's mansion, and as he walked along, certain thoughts concerning the governor's daughter would keep whirling through his head, so that almost he forgot where he was, and took to smiling and cracking jokes to himself. Arriving at the governor's entrance, he was about to divest himself of his scarf when a Swiss footman greeted him with the words, I am forbidden to admit you. What? he exclaimed. You do not know me. Look at me again and see if you do not recognize me. Of course I recognize you, the footman replied. I have seen you before, but have been ordered to admit anyone else rather than Monsieur Chichikov. Indeed. And why so? Those are my orders, and they must be obeyed, said the footman, confronting Chichikov, with none of the politeness with which, on former occasions, he had hastened to divest our hero of his wrappings. Evidently he was of the opinion that, since the gentry declined to receive the visitor, the latter must certainly be a rogue. I cannot understand it, said Chichikov to himself. Then he departed, and made his way to the house of the President of the Council. But so put about was that official by Chichikov's entry that he could not utter two consecutive words. He could only murmur some rubbish which left both his visitor and himself out of countenance. Chichikov wondered, as he left the house, what the President's muttered words could have meant, but failed to make head or tail of them. Next he visited, in turn, the Chief of Police, the Vice-Governor, the Postmaster, and others, but in each case he either failed to be accorded admittance or was received so strangely, and with such a measure of constraint and conversational awkwardness, that absence of mind and embarrassment, that he began to fear for the sanity of his hosts. Again and again did he strive to divine the cause, but could not do so. So he went wandering aimlessly about the town, without succeeding in making up his mind whether he or the officials had gone crazy. At length, in a state bordering upon bewilderment, he returned to the inn, to the establishment whence that every afternoon he had set forth in such exuberance of spirits. Feeling the need of something to do, he ordered tea, and, still marvelling at the strangeness of his position, was about to pour out the beverage when the door opened and Nozdrev made his appearance. "'What says the proverb?' he began. "'To see a friend, several verses is not too long a round to make. "'I happened to be passing the house, saw a light in your window, and thought to myself, "'Now, suppose I were to run up and pay him a visit. "'It is unlikely that he will be asleep. "'Aha! I see tea on your table. Good. "'Then I will drink a cup with you, for I had wretched stuff for dinner, "'and it is beginning to lie heavy on my stomach. "'Also, tell your man to fill me a pipe. "'Where is your own pipe?' I never smoke, rejoined Chichikov dryly. Rubbish! As if I did not know what a chimney-pot you are. What is your man's name? Hi, Vakremi, come here. Petruska is his name, not Vakremi. Indeed. But you used to have a man called Vakremi, didn't you? Uh, no, never. Oh, well, then it must be Derebin's man I'm thinking of. What a lucky fellow that Derebin is. 
An aunt of his has gone and quarrelled with her son for marrying a serf woman, and has left all her property to him, to Derebin. What would I have an aunt of that kind to provide against future contingencies? But why have you been hiding yourself away? I suppose the reason has been that you go in for abstruse subjects and are fond of reading. Why Nozdrev should have drawn these conclusions no one could possibly have said, least of all Chichikov himself. By the way, I can tell you of something that would have found you scope for your satirical vein. The conclusion as to Chichikov's satirical vein was, as before, altogether unwarranted on Nozdrev's part. That is to say, you would have seen the merchant Likachev losing a pile of money at play. My word, you would have laughed. A fellow with me named Perependev said, Would that Chichikov had been here, it would have been the very thing for him. As a matter of fact, never since the day of his birth had Nozdrev met any one of the name of Perependev. However, my friend, you must admit that you treated me rather badly the day that we played the game of chess. But, as I won the game, I bear you no malice. Apropos, I am just from the Presidents, and ought to tell you that the feeling against you in the town is very strong, for everyone believes you to be a forger of currency notes. I myself was sent for and questioned about you, but I stuck up for you through thick and thin, and told the Chinovniks that I had been at school with you, and had known your father. In fact, I gave the fellows a knock or two for themselves. You say that I am believed to be a forger, said Chichikov, starting from his seat. Yes, says Nozdrev. Why have you gone and frightened everybody, as you have done? Some of our folks are almost out of their mind about it, and declare you to be either a brigand, in disguise, or a spy. Yesterday the public prosecutor even died of it, and is to be buried tomorrow. This was true, insofar as that, on the previous day, the official in question had had a fatal stroke, probably induced by the excitement of the public meeting. Of course, I don't suppose you to be anything of the kind, but you see these fellows are in a blue funk about the new Governor-General, for they think he will make trouble for them over your affair. Apropos, he is believed to be a man who puts on airs and turns up his nose at everything, and if so, he will get on badly with the Dvorain, seeing that the fellows of that sort need to be humoured a bit. Yes, my word, should the new Governor-General shut himself up in his study and give no balls, there will be the very devil to pay. By the way, Chichikov, this is a risky scheme of yours. What scheme do you mean? Chichikov asked uneasily. By the scheme of carrying off the governor's daughter. However, to tell the truth, I was expecting something of the kind. No sooner did I see you and her together at the ball than I said to myself, Aha! Chichikov is not here for nothing. For my own part, I think you have made a poor choice, for I can see nothing in her at all. On the other hand, the niece of a friend of mine named Bikusov she is a girl, and no mistake, a regular what you might call miracle in muslin. What on earth are you talking about? asked Chichikov, with his eyes distended. How could I carry off the Dugvener's daughter? What on earth do you mean? Come, come, what a secretive fellow you are. My only object in having come to see you is to lend you a helping hand in the matter. Look here. On condition that you will lend me three thousand roubles, I will stand you the cost of the wedding the Kalaiska and the relays of horses. I must have the money even if I die for it. Throughout Nozdrev's maunderings, Chichikov had been rubbing his eyes to ascertain whether or not he was dreaming. What with the charge of being a forger, the accusation of having schemed an abduction, the death of the public prosecutor, whatever might have been its cause, and the advent of a new governor-general, he felt utterly dismayed. Things having come to their present pass, he reflected, I had better not linger here. 
I had better be off at once. Getting rid of Nostrif as soon as he could, he sent for Selifan and ordered him to be up at daybreak in order to clean the britchka and to have everything ready for the start at six o'clock. Yet, though Selifan replied, Very well, Paul Ivanovich, he hesitated a while by the door. Next, Chichikov bid Petruska get out the dusty portmanteau from under the bed, and then set to work to cram into it pell-mell, socks, shirts, collars, both clean and dirty, boot trees, a calendar, and a variety of other articles. Everything went into the receptacle just as it came to hand, since his one object was to obviate any possible delay in the morning's departure. Meanwhile, the reluctant Selifan slowly, very slowly, left the room, as slowly descended the staircase, on each separate stair of which he left a muddy footprint, and finally halted to scratch his head. What that scratching may have meant, no one could say, for with the Russian populace such a scratching may mean any one of a hundred things. This is the end of part one, chapter ten.